This is Shame and the Pandemic. I'm Paul McNally. We start this episode with a narrated walking tour from YouTube. Welcome to Leicester, one of the largest cities in England's Midlands and one of the oldest cities in the entire country. And to talk more about Leicester, I'm joined in the podcast studio today by Dr. Fred Cooper. He's a research fellow at the University of Exeter. So Leicester is a mid-sized city with a population of about 350,000 people, quite a dense urban centre and like a fairly dispersed sort of hinterland. Leicester is also where the UK had its first local lockdown. Here's a Sky News report from the 28th of June, 2020. Just when the city was reopening, is Leicester looming towards a local lockdown? There's been a rise in cases and it's worrying many. A quarter of the city's total cases have happened in the last two weeks, some of them among staff at this sandwich-making factory. So for more context, as things begin to open up, Leicester is very much still in a kind of um, danger zone because they they haven't shown the right kind of change in, in rates, um, supposedly. So Leicester, while everyone else is kind of allowed to come out of this this big national quarantine, Leicester is visibly and publicly kept within it. So there's this kind of focus of national attention on Leicester as this place which is seemingly doing everything wrong. And that allows all of these racist narratives to emerge around particular neighbourhoods and postcodes. And people increasingly report, people from Leicester and its surrounding areas, that they're being discriminated against, for example... Um, holiday parks refusing to take the bookings, that they're being kind of like nationally vilified. And when you drill down into it, the most shame and the most stigma and all of these kind of discourses of blame seem to centre around areas and postcodes with like high proportions of minoritised people. So what it does is feeds into that narrative that actually it's a certain type of person to blame for the plight of both themselves and um, implicitly for, for white people too. These broader systems of shaming and blaming were often authorised by high-profile politicians. So, for example, Matt Hancock's uh, announcement of a, a last-minute escalation of quarantine measures on the eve of Eid, the Muslim religious festival, has, has kind of been widely interpreted as implying that Muslim communities in particular uh, have not been able to um, abide by social distancing guidelines. So Hancock doesn't really exactly say this, but quite a few of his defenders do say this outright. For example, the Conservative MP for Calder Valley, Craig Whitaker, uh, goes on the radio and says that it is the BAME communities that are not taking this, with this being the COVID-19 pandemic, seriously enough. So you can already see how... Uh, in the rhetoric of politicians, shame is being deflected from the actions of the state and onto specific communities. We now hear from Nikita Simpson. She's a lecturer in anthropology at SOAS, and she'll be telling us about how she worked with the Leicester local authorities. Really trying to understand how to engage different uh, ethnic groups who often were in exposing um, uh, jobs or um, lived in overcrowded housing conditions, which meant that um, transmission was more prevalent in these communities. And what Nikita found was these regional lockdowns bred a stigmatization of the whole place as a source of the virus. 
people felt they were being left behind and the whole country was moving on without them. But these high COVID numbers weren't unique to that summer. The transmission rates, the rates of COVID-19 cases have really stayed high in Leicester for the following 18 months. And and that's really striking. And, you know, our, our kind of um, contribution has been to try and investigate why um, and uh, from a kind of social or relational perspective and what the legacies of those different forms of high transmission, high mortality, long-term chronic conditions of lockdown have done in this place. What I particularly worked on in Leicester was the South Asian community. Now, you know, within the stigma against the whole place, there was a stigma against certain groups for being the source of transmission of that virus. And um, this was again perpetuated by blaming narratives uh, by, um, you know, uh, government officials and also by newspapers where there was there was this kind of moral panic around particularly transmission in these um, small-scale factories that were primarily run by people from the South Asian community, people often migrants, often women, did small piecework in the garment industry, mainly for these kind of big, very precarious networks of contracting that serviced companies like Boohoo and Nasty Gal. It had been known throughout Leicester that these terrible work conditions existed But no one from outside had been interested in the welfare of these people. Then suddenly these people were being blamed for spreading COVID because they were keeping on going during the lockdown. And so we tracked the kind of um, way in which that blame narrative circulated across different communities and caused a a kind of um, wave of stigma against the whole South Asian community, whether they lived in those places or not, or whether they associated with the garment industry or not. So that's a really clear example, I think, of how stigma emerged around this kind of particular outbreak and its legacy kind of, um, you know, got embedded in the social fabric of this place and the the narrative of COVID-19. And, you know, when we, you know, I went back in November last year and still, you know, there's there's these ideas of um, COVID hot zones where people still don't go because there's kind of a perception that they're, that um, you know, COVID is worse in those areas or not. And and those aren't necessarily built on any kind of data or evidence. They're from these kind of circulating narratives of blame. One thing that happened during the pandemic was policymakers and public health officials tried to manage outbreaks in different places. And in doing so, they had to think about compliance of regulations and the uptake of vaccinations. The way often that policymakers and even the media has talked about these processes of uptake and compliance and things like that is often in these kind of um, uh, categorizing ways, like uh, all people from X community are vaccine hesitant or all people from Y community, you know, have poor uptake of COVID-19 testing or all people of Z community have higher rates of COVID mortality than others. So when they're initially used, these categorizations of community not necessarily meant to be stigmatizing or or perpetuate blame narratives, 
but often the ways in which they kind of get picked up or they land in an environment where people are really scared of COVID transmission, they have to manage their kind of risk appetite in quotation marks. You know, they, they're already avoiding shopping centers because they don't want to get COVID or they um, are protecting someone who's clinically vulnerable. And people start to make these kind of uh, baseless judgments, you know, that are they're based on rumor more than anything. And these are what kind of perpetuate stigmatizing narratives. Now, an anthropological idea of community is much more diverse. Anthropologists are really good at, I suppose, thinking about the ways in which communities are formed in a dynamic way, um, often uh, through forms of exclusion and inclusion, how people belong to different communities at the same time, you know, and and I suppose an ethnography is really about tracking those different planes of, of community. And there's lots of different different definitions. So I don't want to give you an anthropological definition of community. But what we found is that in policy, because uh, governments had to engage at community level, often they kind of perpetuated these kind of classifications that then became blame narratives. Another set of interventions that Nikita worked on during 2021 was around social infrastructure. This is really about how communities have been recovering from the pandemic you know, what kind of infrastructures, social infrastructures had kind of sprung up or were kind of absorbing the impact of this crisis. So, you know, those included things like mutual aid groups and faith groups, uh, you know, schools, areas of formal care, but also forms of informal care. So how had families changed their relationships? How had neighbors changed their relationships in order to um, care for one another? And our big question was like, how do we invest in and support these social infrastructures so that we're able to heal from this pandemic? When Nikita asked residents of Leicester about these narratives, they cited a long history of exclusion and geopolitical conflict. One thing that I think anthropologists can show is when people interact today, they hold, you know, generations of history in those interactions. So understanding why people do what they do is often not necessarily related to, you know, what's going on right now. It's also related to kind of histories of trauma or histories of conflict and things like that. And kind of people wanted to talk about those things when they when I asked them about COVID. I think it's very important to call out those forms of xenophobia and racism because it really wasn't a big part of the mainstream narrative around COVID-19. And I think that that has been a problem. What Nikita has tracked with Professor Laura Baer is the way that certain behaviours have stigmatising effects. What I've tracked as a researcher, what, um, you know, look, Professor Laura Baer, who's led our kind of engagement with policy, has tracked is the ways in which certain behaviours have stigmatising effects. And sometimes those effects aren't necessarily, you know, intentional. Um, but in this context of radical uncertainty where people aren't sure what to do, you know, sometimes the behaviours they have are do have stigmatizing effects and often those are perpetuated by you know authority people in positions of authority who perpetuate you know these kinds of blame narratives but I think particularly um, one of the reasons why 
people have to make decisions like that is because the, the rules that are made by authorities don't really match with the kind of complexity of everyday life, you know. Suddenly people have to make all their own decisions about what is safe and what isn't safe. And I think that creates a, a great deal of anxiety. Um, you know, it's kind of pushing back the responsibility for care onto people and, and networks themselves. I think one of the things that you can read about in our first report is really about how the rules for social distancing, you know, were made for a kind of mainstream, middle class, two parents and two kids, family who were self-sufficient and able to isolate in their households. I mean, the reality was that most people don't live in those situations, you know. Some people lived in overcrowded situations, some people were extremely isolated. So the regulations didn't account for the complex networks of care that sustain social life and the way we kind of help each other to get by. So what we tracked is the way in which people turned inwards to help each other and they had to kind of innovate or work around the rules in order to kind of live, you know, and survive, um, particularly if they were caring for dependents or people who were clinically vulnerable. So we're talking about these different facets of racism alongside one another because uh, I, th I think of them as really closely interconnected. Um, so what these sharp eruptions of, of violence and, and abuse do is they feed into this much kind of longer um, problem of health inequalities that is precisely the reason why uh, people from ethnic minorities are, are dying in greater numbers from COVID-19. So the experience of racism, whether that's like a personal attack or whether it's the kind of anxiety that comes from being part of a, a group which is suddenly um, subject to, to different instances of violence, for example, is a really crucial part of the, the vast stresses and strains and the processes of structural shaming um, that minoritized populations have to endure. And this has like a really meaningful physical and mental toll on people. Lifelong experiences of stress, um, sometimes described as weathering, um, and, and shame uh, related to this kind of constant experience of being, of being marginalized or racialized has a really bad long-term effect on health, um, in, including intergenerational trauma as well. You end up with a situation in which people's ability to withstand diseases like COVID is seriously compromised. And you can't extricate specific instances of violence from that because they're always going to be part of that picture. So in some ways, what we're trying to think about is a cyclical understanding of shame and racism in which shame actually draws together all of these different things that we're trying to understand. It's important to recognize that this groundswell of anti-Asian racism doesn't just come out of nowhere. It has a long history, like in the way that the West responds to Chinese migration. There's this really long conflation of uh, Chinese migration and Chinese labor with kind of uncleanness, with, with dirt and disease. This comes out of lots of kind of colonial anxieties um, about moving and mixing different races in, in the uh, late 18th and early 19th centuries. And this gathers 
around the idea of Chinese people as vectors for disease, whether it is cholera or in some cases, leprosy. So this is an idea that is really kind of banded about by different politicians and different groups of people who, who have a kind of a stake uh, in demonizing Chinese people. And it's actually really interestingly adjacent to anti-Semitism um, in terms of thinking about kind of polluted blood and Asiatic peoples. And so there's this kind of long history of that too. Even before COVID-19 was being reported in great numbers in the UK, we see this global trend of direct instances of physical confrontation and violence against people that are perceived to be from China. In the UK, this takes the form of a series of high-profile and well-reported assaults on people, usually kind of accompanied with, with racist language and, and, and violence, and this massive uptick in rates of reported hate crimes uh, among people from Asian backgrounds. You can see some identical anxieties in the figure of Fu Manchu, the well-known racist caricature who was a scientist and criminal and the antagonist of Saxe Roma's novels in the early 20th century. Manchu is kind of always there as this sinister force trying to undermine Western democracy. And quite often he uses plague or the threat of plague to do so. In one instance, he's seen threatening the, the main character with leprosy. Um, and he kind of professes his mastery of all of these different kind of germs and bacilli. So it's it really keys into some of those similar anxieties about uh, coronaviruses emerging kind of simultaneously through uh, a lack of hygiene and dirt that, that is this kind of, you know, racist trope around Chinese people, but also the idea that it might have been engineered in a, a, a kind of a Wuhan lab in order to uh, subjugate the West you can see how these anxieties are fed by this much longer history of thinking about Chinese migration in terms of the spread of disease that really have been there for quite a long time. There were also ways that people were combating this anti-Asian sentiment in the early days of the pandemic. There's the emergence of this kind of campaign called I'm Not a Virus, which kind of allows people to present themselves in ways that are kind of more humanising, that are about kind of foregrounding individual stories and pushing back against this tendency to uh, view Chinese people as spreading, spreading disease. There was a comedy skit uploaded to YouTube early in the pandemic, February 2020, called Coughing While Asian Coronavirus. There was a film which kind of came out by this group called uh, Toe Arbolader Films, which shows this Asian man played by Michael Toe uh, kind of using a cough uh, to get what he wants in various different social situations. It opens with him um, having a kind of a short dry cough in a gym and um, a woman next to him kind of has this very, very exaggerated response and kind of looks at him and sort of like looks scared and disappears. Um, and uh, Toe then kind of smells his armpit to make sure that he hasn't kind of um, driven her away with his body odour. Uh, but then, then it kind of, um, it dawns on him that she has been afraid of him as a, a vector for the virus potentially. And you then kind of see him starting to um, use his cough to reduce queues in coffee shops uh, or to 
uh, alarm co-workers in lifts and things like that um and then um and then he kind of goes to the cinema he's a, he's kind of trying to clear some space and he's about to cough and then um, this kind of big hacking cough comes in and he turns around and there's a, an asian woman in a mask who then kind of winks at him so it's about this kind of shared reclamation of what could have been like a really shaming and horrible thing they kind of try and subvert it um as a way of drawing attention to the like the comically stupid reactions of the white people around them essentially so this is one of the ways that people have kind of used humor to push back against this kind of very very serious serious thing there were also structural racial problems at play here so structural racism goes beyond some of the instances of uh, anti-asian racism and hatred that we were talking about earlier although of course they're connected um so it becomes less about um really clearly visible and easily condemned instances of abuse or violence and it becomes about uh the context and inequalities that people live with on a daily basis and how those are structured in and perpetuated by different institutions um so we might think about um access to housing for example as a really important thing that um that brings with it this kind of whole cocktail of uh educational mental and physical challenges which then make it kind of less likely that people will um succeed um so it's you can think of structural racism as being completely embedded in more or less all of the ways we live our lives it's there in the schooling system it's there in housing it's there in the workplace it's there in politics it's there in uh you know the decisions we make and the decisions we get to make it structures every single aspect of life and as such it's a vast determinant of health inequalities the really bitter irony of you know politicians saying that that it's the eth- ethnic minority communities that don't take it seriously enough is that far and away is it is people of color in britain who have been most adversely affected by the virus in terms of um in terms of of getting the virus in terms of you know hospitalization and and death so this really came out very early on particularly in statistics around the death of healthcare workers um which were really really skewed by race um and so it then kind of raises all of these questions about um once it becomes clear uh that uh, contrary to some people's um fairly silly pronouncements that the virus doesn't discriminate um that actually it does discriminate very very clearly uh, and it discriminates along racial lines and so it raises these questions about exactly why and it kind of comes up with some incredibly <laughs> uncomfortable but very very well evidenced answers um which are all to do with the toll that structural racism takes on the bodies of of ethnic minorities in this country um which makes um particular kind of health conditions um much more likely uh which kind of leave people open to um uh, much more severe consequences of the virus um and so really this is uh about how the kind of daily structural grind of living in a racist country compromises people's ability to to survive the virus this was all quite well publicized but there was no inclination to grapple with why 
because this would involve the admission that we are in a profoundly racist country and the minorities are living with it every day and it is being inscribed on their bodies and minds and health. In this kind of shortfall between really publicly available evidence that ethnic minorities are more susceptible to the virus, but without any real attention to why, because the answers are too damning and unpalatable, uh, particularly for um, the politicians and uh, so on who presided over it. I think it creates room for shame in that then you can see this kind of questioning over okay, precisely why. It leaves open this question of why these groups might be more susceptible. And as you might expect, kind of narratives of blame then seep in. So you have instances of people knowing about these statistics and wondering what it is about what they've done, what about their lifestyle or their diet, for example, that might have rendered them more um, more kind of susceptible. And so it becomes an individualization of these big structural narratives, which carries shame with it but not for the people who cause it, but for the people who are the victims of it. Does the invisibility of structural racism come down in some ways because most of the way that we apprehend infrastructure is only when it goes wrong? This is Dr. Arthur Rose, a research fellow in medical humanities at the University of Exeter. You know, I turn on the tap, water comes out of the tap. I don't think about where that water comes from until I turn on the tap and no water comes out. We tend not to think of our infrastructures until they go wrong. And in some ways, when infrastructure has been built in such a way that it perpetuates a certain advantaging one group and disadvantaging another, it's very difficult for the advantage group to see that advantage because they just see it much like water coming out of a tap. I think it involves uh, actually, again, a potentially shaming admission that a lot of the good things in your life might not be because of your like hard work, dedication and industry, but because you're white, which is really hard to kind of to think about and, and may itself kind of undermine your self-identity as someone who is kind of successful and doing well because of because of you <laughs> rather than because of uh, because of deeply ingrained structural inequalities so this is this is not a bug it's a feature of how we structure these things this is f- in in a lot of ways the intended consequences of how these things work so it's not an aberration it's kind of baked into the way we build the world that we live in it's profoundly racially structured. There is also the element of physical violence to consider. Whether directly experienced or not, racist violence and abuse contributes to a kind of psychological and physiological burden of the pandemic in ways that feed directly into structural racism and health inequalities. So you can think of... Um, racism is impacting health in like a vast amount of ways but one of those is the likely exposure to 
serious stress and uh, instances of, of feelings of shame connected to experiences of both racism and of structural racism throughout life. So you can make a case for thinking about um, the racist violence that people received as being intimately connected to structural racism but also p- perpetuating it because it feeds into a bodily story if you like where people of color are subject to so much more stress shame and strain that they become more likely to be for example susceptible to a disease like covid shame is a a really important part of this kind of cyclical process in which racism is perpetuated on both a structural and an individual level. It really ties those experiences together because in experiencing shame, for example, through abuse in the street, that's part of the process which makes people potentially more susceptible to COVID, which then itself becomes resituated as a source of shame later down the line. And lastly, we are going to consider how all this plays into the Black Lives Matter movement. And these were kind of given kind of fresh urgency by the um, the murder of George Floyd uh, on the 25th of May. And there were kind of worldwide protests, um, including all over Britain. And it's a really interesting snapshot of um, how we as a country deal with complaint about racism and racist violence and structural racism all kind of rolled into one because you see people taking to the streets um, to protest uh, something that is literally killing people Um, and everybody um, in terms of the government um, a a kind of like vast majority of the um, supposedly kind of scandalized liberal commentariat talking about how this is going to spread the virus. And what it does is it reconfigures an act of protest as an act of potential disease transmission in ways that key into all of the things we've spoken about in terms of uh, people of colour spreading disease to, to white people, essentially, and being culpable for that. So there's a kind of a moment where health inequalities and structural racism are meaning that racialized people are more likely to die from the virus. People are going out on the streets to protest structural racism and the direct consequences of that in terms of racist violence. And at the same time, being told then that they are complicit in the spread of the virus from which they are dying in higher proportion than white people. So what you have is this kind of an attempt in some ways to shame the racism in Western society being taken deliberately and cynically misunderstood and repackaged as, oh, look, they're spreading the virus, they're irresponsible, maybe there's a time to protest, but this isn't it. Whereas actually, when you think about those health inequalities and what they're doing, there is no time to spare. been listening to shame and the pandemic i'd like to give a huge thanks to the uk's arts and humanities research council the welcome trust the welcome center for cultures and environments of health the university of exeter alice waterson the drama department's podcast studio and all our contributors this podcast has been produced by volume i'm paul mcnally 
See you next time. Volume.